All of you are good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. If you're not, you're welcome. If you're not being light and salt. Are you hiding under a basket? Are you hiding in general? There was a uh, young man, young boy, who had just accepted Christ. And uh, he was getting ready to go to the summer camp. And he was going to be gone for two weeks. And being that he had just accepted Christ, um, he was a little nervous about it. So he went and he talked to his pastor. And, and the pastor prayed with him. And they talked and spoke. And he went his way. Well, after the two weeks, came back. And at church, the pastor asked him and said, Hey, how did it go? And he said, oh, it went great. Nobody found out. <laughs> See, a lot of times we can be like that. We can look so much like the world that we forget. We're called to be salt and light. So today's message is exactly that. Salt and light. Are you being salt and light to the world? You see, Jesus was the light of the world. We just sang about that in the last song. If we've accepted him in our hearts, then that light, his light, is supposed to be shining in each and every one of us. Today, we're going to look at that. We're going to see what it means to be salt and light. We're going to see what it means if we're not being salt and light. We're going to see what God has in store for us. We're going to take a look at the commandments and those who teach them. We're going to take a look at what it means to be the least in his kingdom. We're going to take a look at some anger issues. We'll get to that in a little bit. Payment for your sins. And we're going to wrap it up all nice and neat with a bow with a little bit of God's grace and mercy. Shall we pray? Dear Lord, we come before you, and Lord, as we open up your word, Lord, we just pray that it would speak to us. God, that the words that are written upon this page, these pages, Lord, that they would truly just come alive, that they would be alive in our lives. And Lord, so much so that it is something that we take out to the rest of the world, not that we hide it or we keep it tucked away in our own hearts, but, Lord, we wanted to start there. So, God, I just pray that as we go through this message, as we go through your scripture, Lord, that it would not return void. And your word said that it doesn't. And, Lord, I will always pray that if there is things of me, there are things of man, Lord, that you would allow it to fall upon deaf ears. But, Lord, if it is of you, Lord, truly etch it upon our hearts. God, thank you. Thank you. Know how much we love you. And it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen. So open up into your Bibles. And Tanner went ahead and he went through all of the, the Sermon in the Mount. And we went through all of the Beatitudes. So we're going to pick up in verse 13 as we continue with a little bit of light and salt. Verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, 
and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine so before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Racha, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. So we go ahead and we start off. We start off in here, and Matthew says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled under foot of men. Now, Remember, salt in those days were basically a preservative. They, didn't, they lacked the vacuum-type bags and sealants and refrigeration that we have. And whenever they butchered their meat, the portion that they didn't roast immediately, they would go ahead and they would spread the salt on there. And it would kill, immediately kill, all of the uh, bacteria that was on its surface. Um, and it had this preserving effect. It was uh, meant to keep the meat from rot rotting and putrefying. You see, we're supposed to be salt as individuals. We're supposed to be salt within society. And our church is supposed to be salt. Here Jesus is saying to his disciples, you are the preserving influence in the world in which you live. You are the preserving influence. You're the salt of the earth, that preserving influence. And that's what Christianity is. Wherever it has gone, it has been a preserving influence in that society. Wherever there is a strong Christian emphasis and a strong Christian voice, that society is being preserved and maintained. But whenever the Christian voice begins to fade, that society also begins to deteriorate and ultimately is destroyed. Now, as we take a look in history... And we notice the preserving influences of Christianity. As long as it remains strong 
and dynamic in the influence within the community, the community was strong and powerful. Look at the United States. We were formed on Judeo-Christian values, and it is inculcated and written within the very Constitution, the fabric of our society, the safeguards in order to protect our religious freedoms, to protect the freedom to worship, and to assembly. And those Christian influences were strong. And they weren't afraid to say, our founding fathers were not, were not afraid to say, one nation under God. But through the years, the Christian voice has been weakened. Its influences upon our society. It's been perverted. And you see, the, the land of the brave and the land of the free has been perverted in the sense that the freedoms that we have are no longer the freedoms that were meant to be the freedoms from God. A God who loves us, who sets boundaries on us because he loves us. But instead, it's to say their freedoms can mean whatever they want them to be. The rest of you be damned. I want to do what I want. And it's protected under their First Amendment rights. You see, we can see these rotting forces beginning to erode the very foundations of the great republic in which we live. We see children being exploited for sexual purposes. We see pornography being produced and purchased. You know, when I first started doing this study, I had originally written down a $10 billion industry. And that was from some statistics that I had a few years back. I said, you know, let me just verify my facts. And instead, I find it's now $13.3 billion industry. Folks, we are in a spiritual battle. It's just not men who give themselves over to perverted thinking, but it is satanic. Understand that in its origin. And remember Ephesians 6, 12? What does it say? We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. If we don't become aware of that, we are not going to be properly equipped for the battle. We're going to try to go ahead and fight that battle, that spiritual battle, with carnal weapons. We're going to try to do things like write our congressmen, things like that. But you see, you know, I've already shared with you, I am very much one of those individuals who's like Peter. I want to run out with my sword. I want to lop something off. I want to go ahead and fix things right now. I want to be like that Psalm 144 person who says, blessed be the Lord my, guy, my rock, who trains my hands for war and my fingers for battle. But it's not a carnal battle, is it? No. We need to go ahead and get on our knees before God and begin to fast and to pray. Pray integrating God's word into your prayer because God's word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And we seek God's power, asking for spiritual revival that will turn this nation right side up once again because it's a tremendous spiritual battle. The forces that we're fighting are actually demonic in nature. And the weapons of our warfare cannot be carnal, but they need to be spiritual. They're mighty, and powerful. Prayer is so powerful. And that's something that is able to break down the strongholds of our enemy. That prayer is what we need more and more and more of in our lives. You are the salt of the earth. You are the preserving influences. But if the salt loses its flavor, 
it's no longer then doing its job. Then it's good for nothing. If the church is not being a purifying influence in our community, then it's good for nothing. The church that seeks to exist as a social center is good for nothing. The church needs to be dynamic. It needs to be spiritually influenced and influencing our communities, folks, seeing that godly influence and bringing it to our communities. Can I get a resounding amen for that? Amen. Amen. (laughs) Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city that has been set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor can they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. It gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. How many people here have ever driven in the fog? <laughs> okay, so, so you drive on the, in the fog and you turn your headlights on. But let me ask you this. Does it really do any good? No, right? You can see a little bit in front of the car, you know, but you can't see 300, 500 like you can on a clear day, right? Right. And what happens? Another car is in front of you, and it probably has its flashers on. Okay, folks, I'm just going to share with you. This is a pet peeve of mine, okay? How many? Okay, uh, let's be honest. Let's be honest. How many people put their flashers on? See, I knew there was a couple of you in here. Okay, now, here it is. Wilma puts her flashes on because why? So that nobody hits her. Nobody comes and strikes her, right? Yeah, and is that a good thing? Yes, most definitely. However, when I'm driving behind you, you're blinding me. I cannot see again and again. And it's illegal. I digress. But you really can't see. Right? But think about it, okay? What happens? You've got that car that's in front of you, that car that's coming in the opposite direction. They have their headlights on. And now you can see them and they can see you. You see, turning on your lights is not actually for you to see, but for others to see you. And that's the way we're supposed to be in the world. We're supposed to be the light of the world. Now, are people really seeing us in the world? No. It should be Jesus who shines through us. You know, Greg Glory wrote this book, and it was called The Upside Down Church. And in it, he talks about how backwards or upside down God was when he went ahead and formed his church. Now, think about it. We're in the middle of presidential campaigns right now. And in here, uh, Donald Trump, very popular in the polls. He's a billionaire. He owns all these hotels and casinos, lots of real estate, golf courses, stakes, all these different clothing lines, right? All this money, all this power, all of this wealth. And people flock to him and support him. But God didn't use a rich man. God didn't use the most holiest, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, in order to build his church, did he? No. We read about it the last time I was with you. He calls Peter. He calls John. He calls James. He calls Andrew. A bunch of fishermen. No fame. 
no bright lights, no glory. But yet God builds his church on these men who his light shines through them. I was doing my Bible study one time and, uh, and in it, I came to verse 16 and uh, had this epiphany. Verse 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Glorify your Father in heaven. When we look up to the heavens, what do we see? We see the moon and the stars, right? Yeah. Now, let me ask you this. Where does the moon get its light from? The sun. Yes, exactly. And the moon has no way of producing light by itself. Instead, it only reflects the light that it receives from our sun. Now, the funny thing about it was Mary had this t-shirt, and I was able to find it online. And the t-shirt reads like this. Be the moon. Reflect the sun. And that's the way we're supposed to be, truly. Um, so now I give each and every one of you permission to be Moonies. <laughs> now, you know, if anybody who knows me or has known me for any small length of time, um, if you make the mistake of asking me, Adam, how are you? Be prepared for my monologue, okay? Incredible, tremendous, wonderful, another glorious day. I woke up, the sun was shining, the birds were singing. I knew it was going to be an awesome day. I am blessed and thankful. You ever meet those people that are completely the opposite? I like to call them Eeyore Christians, <laughs> right? Hey, how are you doing today? Fine, but the day's not over yet. Somebody will probably mess it up. Maybe even you. <laughs> right? Do you want to be around those people? No, you don't. Well, you know, some of you might be saying, you know what, I don't, I don't want to be around by you either, Adam. Oh, the birds are singing, the deer are dancing. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the reason why I'm like that is one reason only. It's because of Jesus inside of me. It's Jesus in my life. And I'm thankful for each and every day that he gives me. Each day that I wake up, the fact that there is breath in my lungs, the fact that there's a heart that beats and I don't have to tell it, the fact that I have an amazing family that I get to spend time with. And I'm thankful for each, of them, each and every one of those. You see, without Jesus, without the sun, there's only darkness. And our mission here, our mission within the church is to open up the eyes to the rest of the world to turn them from the darkness to the light. Now, maybe you're asking yourself, Adam, how do we do that? Well, it's listed right here in the scripture. Good works. Now, don't be confused. We do not have a workspace system. I'm not going to make each and every one of you stand out in front of Jensen's and hand out magazines, okay? That's not what I'm talking about. But let's say that somebody were to come up to you and say, hey, could you give me a hand with this? And you go, nah, I really don't feel like it. What is it that we're portraying? What is it that, that we are saying, well, wait a second, I thought you were a Christian, right? Yeah. And, or somebody comes up to you and says, hey, Adam, 
why don't we go out partying tonight? I'm like, woo yeah! I'm down with that, brother! Are we looking any different than the world? So then why would the world want to become a Christian? Now, we can turn that around, though, and let's look at the flip side. If somebody says, hey, I just had a baby, then you say, let me make a meal for you. If somebody says, hey, I need to make it uh, uh, down to the doctors, then you say, what time shall I pick you up? If somebody says, oh, I have to move, then say, great, I have a truck. You see, that's the flip side of it. That's when people look at us, they see the good works, and they say they didn't have to, but they still did. Those kind of good works. The good works that are not for man, but for God in heaven. Do you remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? Turn in your Bibles to Luke 18. We're going to start in verse 9. Luke 18, verse 9. And Luke writes, Also he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all my possessions. And the tax collector, standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you this, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. I had a friend one time who asked me about public prayer. And he was getting upset because his father-in-law, every time they went out to uh, have a nice meal out at a restaurant and everything, would say, okay, guys, hey, let's say grace. And they'd all hold hands, and he was just like, he was like, hey, and he even brought up, you know, what about the tax collector and a Pharisee? Isn't he being just like a Pharisee? Exalting himself out in the public like that? Look at me, God. And so I told him, God knows his heart. If he's looking for the praises of men, he's going to be humbled. But if it's good works for God, he'll be justified in his house. Verse 17, now do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will be by no means passed from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, the law requires death for disobedience. The wages of sin is death, right? Jesus came to fulfill the law by dying for our disobedience. He came to fulfill what the prophet Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one of us to our way and God laid on him the iniquities of us all. We find that in Isaiah 53, 6. 
He came to fulfill the law and the prophets. I haven't come to destroy it. I've come to fulfill it. And that is why Paul, the apostle, wrote, Christ is the end of the law to those that believe. We find that in Romans 10, 4. Why? Because he has brought us into a new relationship with God. And he fulfills the law. He did not come to bring an end, but to fulfill it. He fulfilled the requirements of the law for us dying in our place. You know, I gave this example at the men's camp out. And I said, let's say that here it was, you had a mortgage on your house. And you had to pay 10% interest on your mortgage. Now, you went ahead and you refied it and you now only have to pay 5%. Would you still keep paying the old 10%? I know, some of you are like, well, yeah, get rid of my mortgage that much quicker. It's a great technique. Dave Ramsey talks about it. Um, but think about this, okay? You see, the old mortgage, that's the law. That's the Ten Commandments. And you wouldn't keep those. But Jesus came, refinanced our mortgage, and said, I've got this. Paid in full. Jesus was one day asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he answered, thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Then he said, the second is like the first. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. And in these two, you have the law and the prophets. Everything that God has commanded man, we ought to live up. Uh, it ought to live in relationship to God and relationship to each others. And it's summed up in these two. Love God supremely with all your heart, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you do, then you will be doing all that God requires of you. You see, if you really think about it, we can take the Ten Commandments and we can put them into one of those two categories, can't we? Yes, if you love your Lord, the God, with all of your heart, then are you going to have no, uh, no other gods before you? Yes. What about, would you uh, go ahead and keep the Sabbath holy? Yes. Okay. If you love your neighbor as yourself, then you wouldn't steal from yourself. You wouldn't lie to yourself. You see, love is the fulfillment of the law. And it's so interesting that the law was placed really, for the most part, in the negative, right? Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not covet. It was mainly negative. But then what does Jesus do? He goes ahead and he turns it around and he puts it in the positive. So love is the fulfillment of God's law. God is love. Whoever therefore breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, <laughs> this passage is probably most scary for me. Whoever teaches men and gets it wrong, they will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Well, at least I still make it to heaven. But if you see me sitting in a corner with a dunce cap on, you know what happened, right? But, you know, this kind of reminds me, right, of a pastor that died and went to heaven. And as he stood at the pearly gates, 
talking to St. Peter, um, he noticed that there was all these clocks all around and on the wall. And he asked St. Peter, he said, he said, what are all those clocks? And he said, those are lie clocks. You see, everyone on earth has a lie clock. And every time you lie, that clock will go ahead and move. Okay, said the pastor. Whose clock is that? He said, ah, that's Mother Teresa's clock. It hasn't moved at all. And he said, well, what about this clock over here? He goes, oh, that's Abraham Lincoln's clock. It's moved twice. And the pastor thought for a moment, and he looked around, and he said, where's Hillary Clinton's clock? <laughs> oh, Hillary's clock. Jesus keeps that in the office. He uses it as a ceiling fan. <laughs> I know, I know. So we need, to, we need to keep the commandments and teach those commandments properly. Amen? Amen. Amen? Verse 20. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay. Remember who Jesus was talking to here. Last week, Tanner went over, right, and, and talked about, here it was, he led the, the disciples up to the top of the mountain, right? That here it was, they were up there. And you see, they knew, the disciples knew that the scribes and the Pharisees were the embodiment of righteousness at that time. And these men were constantly displaying how righteous they were by the types of robes that they wore, the borders that they had around their garments, even having bells on them. And just by their action, by the little special actions that they did in their prayers, really indicated how tremendously righteous they were. I mean, these are the guys that Jesus said, you strain at a gnat. And we read that in Matthew 23, 24. Why would they strain at a gnat? Because the law says that you're not to eat anything with blood. So you see, if a Pharisee was out on a morning jog and he accidentally got a gnat in his mouth, okay, you'd see him over there sticking his finger down his throat, straining in order to get that gnat out because he did not want to ingest that blood that had not been first thoroughly bled and kosher. Now, Jesus is saying, you've got to be more righteous than these guys if you're going to enter into the kingdom of heaven. But these guys were practicing righteousness constantly. The righteous standard of the law. But then Jesus goes on to illustrate what he meant by that. For he tells them, now you have heard that it was said by them of old time in Matthew 21 right? You have heard. You see, the disciples, they didn't read, okay? They couldn't read Hebrew. They only knew what the law said by the teachings of who? The scribes and Pharisees, okay? The common people did not know the Hebrew language. And as such, when they came back from Babylon out of captivity, they primarily spoke Chilean. Aramaic was the most common of the language um, around the time of Christ and Greek, but Hebrew was only for the scholars, Therefore, they really couldn't read the scriptures on their own. Uh, it wasn't in their own language. So they had to depend upon the scribes and the Pharisees to teach them thus. And so when he says, you have heard it as has been said in Matthew 21, 
because that's how they learned the word of God. Now, Jesus goes on, and here he teaches six, six teachings of the scribes and Pharisees concerning the law as they were interpreting it and teaching it to the people. Now, we're going to just get to one of them today, um, and we'll try to take on the next few over the next couple of weeks. But Jesus shows how, first of all, that how they were teaching it, and then he declares what it was intended when given by God. Now, the basic difference between the way that they were teaching it and the way that God intended it was that they were teaching it as purely a physical type of thing, something to be filled, fulfilled in a physical way. And Jesus was declaring that God intended it to be a spiritual thing, governing the spiritual attitudes of man, and that God was more interested in the attitudes, not the actions. So let's take a look at the first one here in in 21. Now you heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, how many of your Bibles out there say uh, you shall not kill? A couple of them? Okay. All right. Now, you know, it's interesting because that's a problem for me. See, I was in the military and my job was basically to destroy and kill things, right? I'm a police officer. So I'm authorized to use deadly force to kill things. So does that mean that as a Christian, if you're in a position to defend your life or the life of others, that thou shalt not kill? Hmm. Let's take a look at what the Bible says. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. We see it in Exodus. We were just talking about the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, 13. A time to kill and a time to heal. In Ecclesiastes 3.3, wait a second. Are we now seeing a contradiction in God's word? Well, let's go on. He has commanded you to completely wipe out or kill all the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Presbyterites, the Hivites, and all the Debutites. Now it's not just one person. He's talking about entire races here that he's talking about killing and wiping out. Thou shalt not kill. Well, let's take a look at Abraham. The Lord said, go get Isaac, your only son, the one you dearly love. Take him to the land of Moriah, and I will show you uh, the mountain where you must sacrifice him, where you must kill him to me on the fires of an altar, a burnt offering. And then took the knife, in verse 10, and got ready to kill his son. Ooh. So is this a contradiction? Really? The better translation and the better definition is what? Thou shalt not murder. Exactly. You see, here it is. Murder, the definition of that is the unlawful, premeditated killing of one human being to another. So is it unlawful or premeditated in any of these scriptures? No. Or is a soldier or a police officer, is is what they do unlawful? I know if you look at the media, (laughs) they'd say that it was, okay? But as we sit here and we go back to Scripture, what does it say there in verse 21? It says, you shall not murder, 
and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Something interesting here. Anger is only one letter short of danger. Because danger always lurks beneath anger. You might be able to disguise it temporarily, but if anger is brewing inside of you, it will lead to danger. For murder begins in the heart. You know, I was working uh, uh, just Friday on a uh, closure that was on the backside of uh, SR-18. Uh, leads down into uh, Apple Valley. And over there, I tried listening to the radio. I, I was going through my sermon and everything like that. And the only thing, the only stations that I got were a couple of Hispanic stations. Yo no hablo. Um, and a single country western station. So I left the country western on and I'm going through my Bible. All of a sudden, this song comes on. Now, check this out. This was the chorus of the song. First off, the name of the song is Before He Cheats. Yeah, I know. Go figure, right? <laughs> Before He Cheats on a country western song? Weird. But the chorus came on and this is what the chorus says. I dug my key into the side of his pretty little souped up four-wheel drive. I carved my name into his leather seats. I took a Louisville slugger to both headlights. I slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time he'll think before he cheats. What do you think? Did this girl have anger issues? What lies beneath anger? Danger, right? Yeah, I think this girl was dangerous. Oh, by the way, that was our very own Carrie Underwood. Yeah, Jesus, take the whale, girl. <laughs> but it goes on, and what does it say? Here it is. It says, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, right? Raka. Ah, I totally flipped back too far. There we go. <laughs> shall be in danger of the council, but whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, Raka means empty or senseless, or like an empty-headed man. That's what they're calling. Um, it was a term of reproach used by the Jews in the time of Christ. So let me ask you this. Is anger ever right? Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. There is a place for righteous anger. But there is only one appropriate way to vent it. That's by turning over the tables and ripping the money changers, right? Is that how we do it? Well, wait a second. Let's take a look at what David says. Maybe David has got an answer for us. After all, he's a man after God's own heart, right? Ah, so here it is. Psalm 58, verse 6. Lord, may their bones be broken and their skulls be cracked open. May their teeth be kicked in. I love David. <laughs> now, remember what I said earlier? I said that the Old Testament physically is a picture of things, but the New Testament is spiritually. We are to wage war, but not against 
flesh and blood, right? Let's read Ephesians 6, 12 one more time. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against the spiritual wickedness in high places. You see, there is a place indeed to get angry and to wage war against demons, but with fasting and prayer. That's how we come against these forces. That's how we come against the forces that pollute, that pervert, and destroy. Watch out, though, for unrighteous anger. When you call people idiots and fools, Jesus said that it's equivalent to murder. For when you speak angrily or judge of people, judge people, you murder a part of them. Verse 23. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave the gift there before the altar and go your way. Be first be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Now, does this mean that we have to track down everybody who has something against us? I don't know about you, but that would be a full-time job for me. <laughs> You see, but I believe that the true understanding of this is found in the phrase, therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember. So when you are at the altar there in the place of prayer, the Lord places somebody upon your heart. Then that's where it says that this man or this woman has something against you. Go get it right. Make it right then that's when we need to do as the Spirit leads. Verse 25. Agree with your adversary quickly while you are on your way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. The judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there until you have paid every last penny. Now, you see, the legal system in Jesus' day required the plaintiff to go out and personally track down the individual that had wronged them. It was your job to go find them and bring him physically before the judge. So Dog the Bounty Hunter would have had plenty of business back then. But that is why Jesus says here, if you are on the road with your adversary, if he's captured you, cut a deal with him before you get to court. Apologize. Get it right, because once the matter reaches court, you get cast into prison, and you remain there until you pay every last penny. You know, this is something that I do with my own in-custodies. Every time when we get down to the jail, I always tell them, I, I'm like, hey, look, I did, a, I did a search of you and everything like that, but understand, if I missed anything, once we go through those doors, that's it. All bets are off. You're not getting out in the morning. It's going to be a felony, whatever it is that you're taking inside of there. So this is your last opportunity to go ahead and square up with me. Be honest with me. Did I miss anything? And sometimes they'll go ahead and they'll do the right thing and they'll give up something. Other times they're like, oh, no, no, there's nothing on me. And then, you see, we do a cursory search out in the field, but there's a very intimate search that gets done <laughs> at the jail. And you know what? A lot of times they'll find something. And then they look at you, hey, Chippy. Meth pipe. 
Now I'm going ahead and I'm finding and I'm writing a felony. And guess what? And that knucklehead just went ahead and cost him a whole lot of more in damages, a whole lot more trouble, a whole lot more all over the place of problems. And Jesus says the same thing. Make it right. Make it right. Before you get to the jail. Now, that begs the question because he goes on and he says, and how can you pay every last penny when you're in prison? Is there any way to make money in jail? Right. That's the point, okay? If you let the incident become a big deal by not dealing with it immediately, promptly, in humility, with transparency, then you're never going to escape it. And you know, I think we need to deal with our sin the same exact way. We need to deal with it immediately, promptly, in humility, going to the Lord and asking for his forgiveness. But we can have difficulty with that too, can't we? The fact that our Lord has so much grace and mercy that it abounds. It's likely, um, I'd like to, excuse me, wrap up kind of with this point, this last point. Why is it so difficult to receive grace graciously? You see, I'm convinced it's because we all live by the mantra, there's no free lunch. Unless you're a socialist. <laughs> you know, <coughs> Bernie Sanders. You're bad. But, amen. <laughs> but guess what? There is a free lunch. And a breakfast. And a free dinner too. Come and dine, says the Lord. And we read that in John 21, 20, uh, 12. And it says in Isaiah 51, 5, uh, 51, 1. Excuse me, 55, 1. Ho, that one that thirst, come ye to the waters. And he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. If you're in need today, know this. That there's nothing keeping you from going boldly to the throne and saying, Father, I'm stuck. Father, I don't understand. Father, I need your help. This is the genius of true spirituality and the uniqueness of biblical Christianity. Every other philosophy, every other religion is based upon responsibility. The responsibility to fast or to chant or to give or to work. Christianity is not based upon responsibility. It's based upon response. The response to unconditional love, unrestrained mercy, undeserved grace. You know, for many years, I thought that my salvation was based upon my responsibility to pray, my responsibility to tithe, my responsibility to be here at church. But then as I began to understand that God blesses, God gives, God avails himself, not on the basis of what I do or don't do, but on the basis of what he did in sending his son to die on the cross in order to pay the price for my sins. And when that pressure was taken off of me, I wanted to study the word. I wanted to be in church. I wanted to pray. Not to earn blessing, 
but because I had already been so blessed. Are you being light and salt? Are you keeping the commandments? Do you have anger issues? His grace and mercy is enough. Amen? Let's pray. Precious Heavenly Father, Lord, I am so glad, I am so thankful that your grace and mercy does abound because, Lord, I can't do it by myself. There's nothing good within me that I thank you, that Jesus in my heart shines through and that men would see to your glory, to your honor, his light inside of me. And Lord, I pray, pray that you would just be that light inside of each and every one of us. Lord, that when we walk out, that it would be so bright that people would have to shade their eyes that it would be as if we need to put a veil over our face because your glory shines so bright within each and every one of us. Lord, I pray I would make people sick with Jesus. Lord, allow us that. Allow us that as we leave the four corners of this building and go out into your mission field. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. And it is in your precious name that we pray. Amen.